Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 26 of Music is Not a Genre, MXG. Uh, Every week gets a little better. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Please take a moment, pause, in fact, after I give you this this URL, to support this podcast at patreon.com slash musicisnotagenre. Pause. On pause. Thank you so much for giving me all of your money. I appreciate it very much. The public hub, as always, is youtube.com slash at musicisnotagenre. My website is nickdomatio.com, where I did put together a new podcast page. It's much easier to navigate, so please go check that out. It's nickdomatio.com slash podcast. And as always, please listen to and support my band, Rec, R-E-C, at recarea.bandcamp.com or wherever you stream music. Let's get to this week's topic. I have to say I've been putting this one off for a while because it felt kind of daunting to me, but... Some things kind of happened in this week to help me decide that this was the right thing to do. So that's where we are. And the topic is neo-soul. Old, got new, got old, got now. And of course, as always, usually I'll explain that subtitle. So first of all, if you don't know what neo-soul is, it is a, a movement that kicked off in around the mid-90s, sort of with D'Angelo's album Brown Sugar that's often named as the first official neo-soul album, but whatever. Uh, it is all has also been called Progressive Soul or Alt-R&B. And what it is, is soul music uh, taking its cue very heavily from 1970s soul infused with a hip-hop aesthetic and a 90s aesthetic and an early 2000s aesthetic and beyond. Uh, it, it incorporates funk, gospel, African music, jazz, uh, conscious themes uh, lyrically are preferred over uh, the usual themes, although there are plenty you know, of songs of all kinds, uh, of all uh, topics and all that. It's pretty broad. Uh, as is the style within neo-soul, which is always awesome. And it's pretty much the case with every genre. That's why music is really not a genre. And uh, it prefers organic instruments over processed sounds, over electronic, although it does incorporate some of that as well. Uh, It was considered a reset from the highly processed pop soul that had happened primarily in the charts, at least, before that. So if you're thinking about soul music in the 80s, most of it, soul music in the early 90s, most of it, again, was very heavily uh, synth, you know, synthesized, processed. Uh, I I call it the babyface aesthetic. And that's not a dig. There was a lot of that music that I loved and that was wonderful music. Babyface making a big comeback. So, you know, nice indication there. It's just that that was a change. Artists started to think, and even before this, and we'll talk about that a little bit, what if we went back to the more organic kind of warm sound instead of that brighter, uh, you know, processed uh, tinnier sound that you would get in the 80s and the early 90s? You know, and and li- and that's because, like with any genre, subgenre, or whatever, the next thing that comes along is a response to what came before. It is considered a corrective in some ways. Uh, you know, 
it can be overcorrective. It's considered, well, people might be artists, might be listeners, get tired of hearing the same thing. So are the other artists come along who switch it up? That's how music evolves. And the other thing to mention here with Neo Soul is that it is one of the, I think, main genres in all of music that, and and I have to qualify how I say this, that from the get-go, women were not just essential to it, but central to it. And prominently, you know, they were were pretty well-known from the beginning as well. And the qualification there is, in all forms of music, women have been at the beginning. There were, you know, female, like, R&B, rhythm and blues artists in the 1940s and 50s that helped to establish what rock and roll would become. There were uh, female rappers in the mid-late 70s who were some of the first rappers ever in history. And on and on and on, doesn't matter what kind of music you mention, but... It was well known at the time and throughout this that right during the era of uh, the Lilith Fair and all of that and, and, and Riot Girls and, and really in a decade when women were not just actively involved as they'd always have been, but were really making themselves known and saying, we won't just stay in the background or have our you know, contributions co-opted or you know, shoved aside. And when we get into who some of these neo soul are, sorry, you'll see what, how and why that was just such an important part of it. Uh, that even commercially, they came out equally as strong as the men. And that, sadly, does not always happen. Uh, so, where did it come from? What were the influences? I think that's the first thing to say is this. You can talk about soul music in the type of the we are, say, starting in the 60s precursors earlier than that, but it really took shape and became what we know of as soul in the 1970s. When And, and to me, I love tracking it based on uh, Smokey Robinson's career, when you think about it, because every change that happened to him from the early 60s straight through to the 80s uh, mapped what was happening in kind of soul and R&B music. You know, he's at the forefront of Motown and, and and he's still my favorite, you know, Motown artist when that came to uh, the first wave of that came to an end and he broke up the miracles and went solo. He went into kind of his quiet storm phase and did all of his solo stuff in the 70s that was equally incredible in a different way and helped to really define, like so many other artists of the era, what soul is and was. And then in the 80s, had a couple of hits where he had that sort of, you know, more processed kind of, uh, again, tinnier kind of trebly sound that you associate with almost all of 80s music, but it's, you know, and in this case, the soul music of the 80s. Absolutely. Some other artists of the 70s who were templates for neo-soul, you know, original wave of like serious soul musicians, uh, Stevie Wonder, of course, Marvin Gaye, Barry White a little later on, Isaac Hayes, Curtis Mayfield, uh, Sly, the Family Stone, you know, P-Funk, George Clinton. You had Roberta Flack. You had in her own jazzy way, Nina Simone. You had later on like, uh, you know, Teddy Pendergrass and Donny Hathaway and Bill Withers, Al Green, 
uh, and Gladys Knight, one of my favorites. And of course, they they all did things other than that to a certain degree. But when you think of soul, you very often think of these artists and hundreds of others, of course. Uh, you know, interestingly, Bobby Caldwell just died as of the recording of this. And, you know, it's it's this big thing in the news that a lot of people thought he was black when he came out, but he's actually white. And again, it shows you that music and labels in general, you know, genre labels, whatever, people labels, if the music is good, it's good. People, you know, are welcome to do whatever kind of music they love, uh, as long as and especially if they give credit to where it came from. Uh, then what happened was, of course, that kind of soul music got old or whatever and the music industry moved on and the listeners moved on and you come into the 80s and it got that trebly sound and there wasn't a lot of just straight up soul that was very popular in the 80s there was but not quite as much in the charts but you still had artists especially getting into the late 80s who were really dipping into that soul well you know reminding people that hey it hasn't been that long since it was usually popular and it's incredible music and we should all be, you know, uh, you know, bow to it and love it again. Prince, huge one, uh, Anita Baker, uh, Terrence Trent Darby. I mean, these are like pre-neo soul people who were basically doing neo soul, uh, you know, in, in various ways. Soul to Soul, the collective from Britain, uh, the brand new heavies here. And this is where I'm going to get out my... You know, some of these, if I can do it without knocking them down, the diorama. You listeners out there, again, you're missing some real pyrotechnics here. Me turning and picking CDs. Uh, the brand new heavies in the early 90s were one of my absolute favorite bands. And yeah, they had a dancier quality, they had horns, whatever. But to me, they were hearkening back to an older age at a time where not a lot of that was happening yet. So they kind of were at the forefront. You could say a band like uh, Jamiroquai, you know, you could say, a band, uh, of course, Lenny Kravitz, It Ain't Over Till It's Over, is basically one of the greatest soul songs ever, you know, recorded. And that was done in like the mid 90s. And you can, and of course, like I said, Prince, and I picked Diamonds and Pearls out because it was of that era. And when you think of the song Diamonds and Pearls, isn't that just pre-neo-soul in a lot of ways. And then you had Lisa Stansfield and Tony, 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 Michelle and Diego Cella, and, and uh, even, you know, to a certain degree, Nana Cherry, and and uh, hip-hop acts of that pre-neo-soul era, like De La Soul, there you go, right in the name, A Tribe Called Quest, uh, Diggable Planets, Arrested Development, had those jazz and African influences and organic instruments woven in, even at the time, and they're going to become hugely important in a second, uh, the Roots had started in the late 80s and had started putting out stuff in the early mid-90s and were, of course, all organic instruments. And so, you know, they they should be mentioned here, but mentioned even more uh, a little bit coming up. So even though the kind of organic soul music with the influences I mentioned wasn't a huge thing, in the late 80s, early 90s, it was there. And these are some of the standout artists who did that. And it's just some people, and, and I mean, Soul to Soul was, again, I have the cassette. It's one of my favorite uh, acts of the time, 
you know. And I mentioned some of the influential hip hop acts at the time and how they were different from the hip hop that had come in the 80s. And that kind of uh, conscious hip hop would continue on, but not in the same style as the bands like De La Soul and the Tribe Called Quest did in the late 80s, early 90s. But I mentioned them because, again, hip-hop is a big part of all of this, and it's going to come back uh, as I talk about the actual era of neo-soul, which I'm going to do right now. And and much of it, many of these artists, really two things. One, were working with or somehow associated with this group, the Soulquarians, which was founded in part by Questlove of the Roots, and when I get to this next stack of CDs, you'll see one of theirs in there, even though I did the beginning of this season, an entire episode on The Roots. There's no reason why they shouldn't come back again and again. Uh, Quest Love being at the Oscars and just being a hugely influential person in so many ways on commercials and everything these days, you know, I, I wouldn't have known back in the late 90s that that's where things, you know, would have gone. And honestly, somebody like him and The Roots and Black Thought and all that. No idea where it's going to go next. And that's a great thing. But so Aquarians, Jay Dilla, the late great Jay Dilla, James Poyser, D'Angelo, and the bassist Pino Palladino were really central to the Aquarians and to that sound. Uh, And and there's a second element here, which I'm going to save, that is, is again, common among almost all of these neo-soul artists. But let's get to some of the other neo-soul artists. So we talked about D'Angelo and uh, Brown Sugar. I'm going to pull this out now so we can start talking about the stack here. And this album here, Voodoo, is to me, and according, I guess I read again uh, after after I thought of this, uh, other people, the pinnacle of neo-soul. It's an album from 2000, early 2000, that has stayed with me so much throughout the years. It has actually influenced in some of what I do. I'm not a strictly a soul artist, but there are certain things I do that do have influences from that, and especially from this album, that kind of murky, dark, low harmonies, and just the, it, it, it hits you in your entire torso and it is just incredible. You're, you're thrust into a world. And I remember the first time I heard this, I hadn't moved to New York yet. And I was on my way up here for an audition and I was listening to it in the car and it just took me like, I don't even remember the trip. All I remember is the music, you know? Uh, So yes, D'Angelo, huge. Uh, and then you have, and, and I'm, see, I'm not sure which ones of these I actually have, but yes, you've got Erica Badu, and this is Mama's Gun. It wasn't her first one, but it was my favorite and an awesome one. This was sort of, again, at that peak of early 2000s, even though Neo Soul had been around for a while. And then, yeah, of course, Lauren Hill, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Uh, you have a guy named uh, Music or Music or Music Soul Child from Philly and to keep that in mind as we get to the end of this list, you have a, a guy named, uh, which one is this? This is chocolate genius headphone masterpiece, freaking awesome. 
Uh, yeah, Cody Chestnut. Oh, no, I have from Masterpiece. Cho- this Chocolate Genius is... Oh, I don't remember. Oh, God Music. Yeah, sorry. I just I saw the headphones and I got confused. Headphone Masterpieces by Cody Chestnut, who will come up again later as well. And and then you've got The Roots. So huge, right? And, and Questlove played on a lot of D'Angelo's album. Uh, I, he may have even played on the first one. I didn't look that up. He played on so many others. And so those other Soquarians did... Uh, before I get too far ahead, let's name some other prominent, prominent uh, neo-soul artists. Maxwell is a huge one right there at the forefront. Uh, Macy Gray, uh, Angie Stone, Jill Scott, India Ari. I mean, again, so so many women and uh, Bilal. And one of the things that a lot of those artists have in common is not just the Soulquarians, it's the Philly connection, and it's no accident. I mean, if anybody knows anything about music history would know that uh, Philly Soul, Philly International, and all of that, soul music, you know, and Philly are are inextricably linked. They're intertwined in a, in a way that they can never be, you know, untwined uh, to this day. And that's evident here in all of these artists. You've got People from Philly that I've mentioned, Jill Scott, The Roots, Music, Soul Child, Bilal, uh, James Poyser, The Soulquarians, and also in, in his own right. And then later on, I'll mention a guy named Amos Lee, also from Philly. And there are two things you can feel when, if you're from Philly, you you get a sense, you're listening to music and saying, wait a second, I hear a connection there. And one is, yes that soulfulness because there are artists who don't even do soul music who are from Philly who have some element of that soulfulness and the second thing is something I mentioned when I was talking about G Love and in that episode and that is that Philly is a crossroads in a lot of ways it's not just a hotbed of certain uh, genres but it's a crossroads for a lot of genres and so a lot of music that comes out of there is an amalgam I mean Hundred percent wreck. You know, my music is is an amalgam. There's no question about it. And so many of the bands that I've listened to from Philly from the very beginning and even before, you know, I was old enough and before I was born, have that same sense of amalgam to them. Where crossing lines is a good thing. Coming together is a good thing. You think the you know what does Philadelphia mean? City of brotherly love. The idea of bonding and you know coming together in a way that creates something new right and that's evident in so much of philly soul soul in general philly soul uh and the other thing and i'm just going to mention this real quick because this comes at around the same time i was heavily into you know neo souls you can see all the the cds i have and there were several that i had that i ended up selling or actually donating when i was you know, culling the herd to move. Uh, there were others that I wish I, you know, some I wish I still had, but in general, quite a collection. I was putting out an album. It would be my last album under my own name or the name Nick, you know, which was my performance name for a few years there, about a decade. And you can see on the cover, it's the Metro Grand Sessions, Mo2, the influence that soul music had and and you know there's a lot of 
brown and orange and darker red hues. There's a little bit of shine in there. But this design that I created, which let me see if I can do it without that glare. All right. Was 100% influenced by like Stevie Wonder covers and people like that. And certainly Neo Soul covers. And you look at some of these covers that have that similar hue. And sorry, you listeners, I'll name them so you can look them up. But D'Angelo's Voodoo has a brownish red. You've got, uh, of course, uh, Mama's Gun, Erica Badu, which has the, you know, green, red, orange. Lauren Hill has that muted brown. Uh, Musique has a reddish and a brownish. Uh, which one is this? Uh, which album is this? It's, jeez, uh, yeah, just listen. Just listen. Uh, this doesn't. That's you know a white cover, but you get uh, the headphone masterpiece. Somewhat of a of a, a brownness there, and and you can't the you know the roots do their own thing. So, but that but that just to me like visually is something that I've always associated with that, and something that I've always loved. That really because it's connected so much with the feeling of the music. There is a warmth and a depth there, and that comes out in the you know in the artwork. And like I said, there's a huge uh, hip hop contingent that, you know, worked with neo soul artists and were considered in some ways themselves neo soul artists and certainly influenced neo soul and even pre neo soul, as I mentioned. And I mean, you've got uh, one of my favorite artists, uh, Yassine Bey, who was known, you know, previously as Most Deaf, who worked with Talib Kweli and Blackstar. Uh, yes, they were called Black Star before Bowie's album, Black Star. Uh, and then, yes, The Roots, as I mentioned, uh, the, I believe, want to say West Coast band, Black Alicious, uh, have certain qualities of Neo Soul in them. Uh, you've got, and to me, they are like the extension of De La Soul and A Tribe Called Quest. Like if, if they had still been, you know, putting out commercially successful stuff in the late nineties or, you know, early mid O's they would be like Blacklicious to me. That's how I feel. And then, of course, you can't go far without mentioning the Fugees and, and all the solo albums that stemmed from the Fugees and Common. Common, huge part of this entire movement. Uh, so many of these artists work with each other. And when I get into even the second kind of wave of Neo Soul, you'll hear a lot of that too. But like I said, you had Questlove working with D'Angelo, who, who, you know, Questlove and The Roots working with Jill Scott and just on and on, just kind of this, you know, folding over and, and the Soulquarian, you know, connection and all of the uh, common ground and collaboration. And let me go back and say again, because there's a, there's a couple of other albums here that I think are worth mentioning, you know, Voodoo, D'Angelo is the, artistically the pinnacle, but you could make a case uh, that other albums are also considered right up there at the top. And the ones I have seen most mentioned uh, are uh, Erica Badu's Baduism, uh, Miseducation of Lauren Hill, again, um, and Maxwell's Urban Hang Suite. Of all of these artists, Maxwell's one that I uh, don't know really much about. It. I didn't ever really listen to, but I will say although he did take a break at some point, he's really of all of these artists, the only one who kind of continued in any kind of consistent way. There was apparently a lot of shifting and burnout 
that happened. And we're going to talk about that. I'd even put Jill Scott's 2000 album in there. I think it was called Who is Jill Scott or something like that. That's an album I used to have on CD. I think that should be in the mix is if you were going to mention five, mention Voodoo, Baduism, Miseducation, Urban Hang Suite, and, and Who is Jill Scott. Uh, I think that was an album that really helped define certain facets of Neo Soul that were not necessarily present in some of the other artists. You know, there was a poetry there in, in very deliberate poetry, I think is a way to say it. So, you know, we talked about how if if you want to say, and I think it was 95 was when Brown Sugar by D'Angelo came out. We talked about how that was ostensibly the start of Neo Soul. In a lot of ways, by 0204, the movement had just completely burned out. And it seemed to, it didn't, I wouldn't say it exploded, but it, it seemed to have imploded in a lot of ways. And it was done in to me by a couple of things. First of all, you have to give credit to the artists who were starting to be defined again by genre. And that kind of rigidity and confinement is anathema to almost all artists. There are certain artists who actually like that. They prefer it. They often do it to themselves or they feel that the safety of, well, this is what we do. We do it best. Let's just keep doing this. But but so many artists, and I would say even the majority, prefer to not have walls built around that they didn't build themselves. And so when you get, as always, the record industry and the media and then eventually crowds and fans starting to hear this buzzword and I, it's, it's something that I can't stand of Neo Soul and then saying, well, Neo Soul is this and that's all it is. And anything that goes a little too far to the left or right is not Neo Soul. That just feels horrible to an artist. And it's one of the things that actually kills a movement and kills a, you know, a genre or subgenre and, is I guess it moves music into the future, is that if it doesn't have room to grow and breathe, it's just going to wither and die. You know, it's going to suffocate. And that's why I get that idea of implosion. And there's a song that was originally on Cody Chestnut's headphone masterpiece. Of course, it's near the bottom of this freaking pile. And it's right here called The Seed. And the Roots did it on an album in 04, I want to say, and they redid it called The Seed 2.0 and Cody Chestnut's on there, but they redid it and Black Thought had, you know, uh, it's the superior version. And people have interpreted those lyrics in many different ways. And I mentioned this a little bit in the Roots uh, episode, but what they were really saying to most, you know, listeners and interpreters' ears is that you've got, you know, rock and, uh, you know, what is it, rhythm and blues and country mixing and creating rock and roll. But then there was this sense of, you know, uh, one type of music seeds another type of music and, and outgrows a third type of music. And there are certain lyrics in there that talk about how either artists or primarily, again, the, the, the same kind of triple threat of the record industry, the media, and, um, you know, rigid fans, let's say, uh, saying 
that it could only be X or Y. And they were pushing against this. And if you're already pushing against it after something's only been around for a few years, you know that there is uh, some kind of conflict inherent in what's going on. And that kind of, you know, death knell, you can hear it for genres way before the genre peters out. You can hear it in certain people's lyrics. You can hear it in the way artists, certain artists produce music. I mean, when you get an artist, when you get artists like Prince or David Bowie, who were deliberately pushing boundaries all the time, as if to say, you will never, ever put me in a box, no matter how hard you try, then they rise above in a way that a lot of artists can't. Some will shift into something completely different. And then some, they just, they just burn out. They can't take the pressure. They don't know what to do next. I don't really, you know, I don't want to get into why certain artists just, just stop producing music. And there's so many, I mean, shoot, you can even say that happened to Sly at a certain point, although it took a lot longer, but you've got artists like, you know, D'Angelo who puts out this album Voodoo and then doesn't put another album out for well over a decade. And even for a while stopped performing, you you know, the the famous or infamous, you know, Lauren Hill going through the issue she did, just having that spotlight thrust on her for such an incredible masterpiece. And then I guess, you know, for whatever reason, retreated from that, certainly popped up in various ways, but in the manner in which she has popped up, it is clear that one of the intentions is to say, I'm doing what I'm doing and I don't care how anybody else defines it. And that's, and that's bold and you wish and I wish. You know, to me, when I do my subseries, Death is Dumb, part of the reason why I say it's, it's dumb or however you want to phrase it is because a person's actual death robs us of what they would have created had they continued to live. And I have been lately saying for so many reasons, you know, X is a gift, Y is a gift, because you've got artists who continue on past the point when they need to even, and are still creating great stuff and, you know, giving the world something. Uh, Completely unrelated example, Hulu's got History of the World Part Two, you know, run and and started by um, Mel Brooks, who's 96 years old as of this recording and is still actively doing great stuff. That doesn't need to exist, but because it does to me, that's a gift. So somebody dies, those gifts are gone. I think in a similar, slightly lesser way, that happens when people stop creating new music. Whether you're talking about acts who become tributes of themselves, who for some reason lose the thread. I always mention Chicago and how they went. They started to go to a place where even if they put something new out, they're just, it just didn't, doesn't barely feels like it has a connection to the vibrancy and spark that they had, especially in the seventies and even in to some degree in the eighties or Billy Joel is a huge one who just, you know, early nineties come along mid nineties. And he's like, I'm done. I'm going to perform probably till I die, but I don't have any intention of creating, you know, putting out new music, even though I believe he's still creating new music. And that's to me is, is a death of a sort because I guarantee you, whatever it is that he decides, I'm going to put this out. 
people are going to devour and be like, oh my God, that's Billy Joel. You know, like anytime uh, older bands like U2 or The Cure or, or up until, you know, his death Prince or up until um, MCA's death, the Beastie Boys would put out a new album after even a few years break sometimes. I mean, not Prince, he never took a break. But, you know, I'm I eagerly awaiting the next U2 album, the next Cure album. Even the Chili Peppers putting out albums last year, bands who could just simply live wherever they want to live and do nothing or just perform their old stuff. But it's this excitement of, oh, wow, these artists are still trying to do something new. You know, they're not the, I, I, again, I keep going to my go-tos, but they're not the Beach Boys, you know, who at a, at a certain point just gave up putting out new music for whatever reason. I mean, Brian Wilson, maybe not as much, but you, you get what I'm saying. And so when you have, you know, Badu and D'Angelo and Lauren Hill just saying, ah, I'm done. I can't take this anymore. It really almost, it, there were, there were such a presence at that time that it sucked a whole hell of a lot out of the universe when they disappeared. And so when, you know, D'Angelo puts out his new album uh, a few years ago or, or a single recently, or when he did that tribute uh, live, sometimes it snows in April for when Prince died, you again feel like, oh, the presence has returned. It is a gift being given, you know. Uh, it's it's a taste at least, and unfortunately, none of these artists have come back as fully as they once were. Not I don't mean artistically, but I mean in terms of just attacking the world and and consuming it and us being consumed by what they do there are artists who every time they put something out that's how you feel you know and you want that more from this and it's sad that the pressure to conform to something that was just a few years ago you know new a new version of things that had come before that were currently existing it it sucks that it was kind of killed in the way it was killed uh, so quickly. And part of that is because some of these artists were so exploratory that they began to shift away from the charts. And while I think artistically and personally, that's a wonderful thing. If you're a part of the industry or trying to make a living and or helping to support other musicians and crew and other people who are working for you and with you and the money starts to dry up, it's hard to continue. It sucks that that has to be such a big part of it. But unless you've reached a certain threshold where it doesn't matter what you do, you will always make money like, you know, like a Paul McCartney or a, or a U2 or any of the people who are just now legends still continuing. Unless you reach that point, there's, you know, there's a point at which if you don't have some kind of steady income coming from whatever it is, you can't continue to do what you do in the way that you did it. So that's part of the reason why this happened. But again, a lot of the reason was the pressure. And I, I say that, I say that, that the idea of them shifting away from the charts on purpose, because it's dawning on me as I look at this next section that I'm getting to, which is uh, the rest of my subtitle, old, meaning 70s, got new, meaning neo-soul in the 90s, got old, meaning it it died out too quickly, got now, meaning it never actually really died out. 
it just morphed. And what it morphed into was a newer version of pop soul. So if you think about certain soul songs in the 60s, a little bit in the 70s, big time in the 80s, little bit in the 90s, there has always been a certain strain of soul music that has been more leaning towards the pop end of things than to the kind of, you know, deeper, more exploratory sound or that warm kind of inky sound when you think, if you listen to any single track off of D'Angelo's Voodoo, you will understand what I mean. Even the things that are popping to my head from like Lauren Hill's main album, like that's <laughs> same thing. You get that feel. That feel did not continue. That type of neo-soul did not continue, but its influence did continue on. You've got people who in the early O's started to do, again, a poppier form of neo-soul. That at the time I wouldn't, is I think one of the reasons why I started to phase out myself because I wasn't quite as into it, but I wouldn't necessarily even have qualified it, uh, you know, or as that, have classified it as neo-soul. So that's why I say it's a second wave. And that's people like, boom, John Legend, who, yes, also worked with The Roots, one of my favorite albums from like 10 years ago or so, uh, Alicia Keys, big time. CeeLo, who had been around for so long, starts doing this kind of poppier, you know, neo-soul, like there's traditional elements in what CeeLo did at the time. Uh, Anthony Hamilton, you, you can even mention Amy Winehouse and people like that who who were had such an element of that old school to them, but not in the way that that first wave of neo-soul did. There was some changes happening there. Uh, I'm going to mention this guy who was actually just on Colbert because his star didn't really start to shine as bright until recently, which, hey, I don't care. You know, the world is the way it is. Artists are who they are. And sometimes those two things don't meet up, you know, timing and all of that is Robert Glasper, who is a jazz artist, but who has so much of that neo-soul feel. And he started in the, I believe, in the early O's. Uh, So he's sort of second wave, but sort of, to me, even next wave and beyond. And that next wave would include people like Frank Ocean, like huge Frank Ocean. Uh, I've got to say Kendrick Lamar. And again, you see that hip hop connection, but you're talking about somebody whose production style incorporates, again, soul and hip-hop, funk and jazz and all of this stuff that you heard back in the mid-late 90s and early O's, back even in the late 80s and early 90s with the Tribe Called Quest and all that, where it was just that amalgam of styles that didn't rely super heavily on electronics. And I'm a huge electronics, again, electronica fan. It's not a judgment call. It's just a difference in style. So Frank Ocean and Kendrick, Esperanza Spalding, Amos Lee, again, somebody else from Philly, that just that Philly connection. Fits in the tantrums, Nathaniel Rayliff and the Night Sweats. I don't know if I, you know, uh, pronounced his name correctly, but you're getting a, a different feel of soul. There's a band that shoot just popped into my head that I wish I had written them down, who've had some hits, who've been on TV, who've had their songs in movies and television, uh, who have again that kind of warm soul feel. And here's here, here's where I think what I think started to happen. You had those early middos people who were who were popular, who many of whom are still continuing on, 
special, like a big, big time being John Legend, uh, who had that certain feel of it wasn't that down, deep, low, you know, quality. I mean, Amy Winehouse had had a bit of that, but but with more of a rock edge. Uh, then you had people coming in the next wave who took off from that kind of pop second wave neo soul and started to add in grittiness with like an Amos Lee or a Fitz and a, you know, even Esperanza Spalding, even Kendrick Moore. There's a, there's a grittiness that was coming back, but not in the way that it had existed. Uh, I wouldn't call neo soul gritty. You know, I'd call it, you know, gutsy and just, uh, you know, all the other things I mentioned, but that kind of grit, that more leaning in more towards the blues, but still soul to me was that third wave. And then the later surge, uh, right up until today, which is again, old got, who got, new got, old got now, flow a tree, uh, Anderson pack. And I've got to mention Silk Sonic, you know, this is collaboration with Bruno Mars, which is like a del- very, very deliberate retro throwback. But again, uh, you know, I'll, I'll classify these in a little bit, but you get that sense that it is different from what came before. Uh, Ari Lennox, her big time, Moses Sumney, uh, Thundercat. Uh, you got a little bit in that with Childish Gambino again, hip hop, you know, Giveon, big time, Mahalia, Steve Lacey, Arlo Parks. And, and here is, I think, where some of the most creative stuff, uh, you know, free of boundaries has emerged from the influence of Neo Soul. Meaning this, when, when I talked about, you know, the, my decade slam, my hundred year decade slam and how every, you know, genre had its peak decade, often the peak of a certain genre would actually come just after it was hugely popular, you know, or during a comeback or whatever you want to say. So, you know, uh, to me, I, I, I can't remember everything that I said in that episode, but look back in that episode and you'll hear me say like, oh, it was more commercially successful in X decade. But then when this decade came is when it really started to explore itself and it still had that elements of the commerciality, but really let itself go in so many other ways. And to me, that's where a lot of the neo, 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 whatever. soul, this fourth wave uh, is now, as is so much music now, because as the Internet started to have the influence it did, where people just started to, you know, listeners in particular are are very much to me no longer part of that triple threat in in a big way older ones maybe you know people i've heard people you know trash certain artists for ridiculous reasons uh but in general you've got the music industry you've got the media who are still heavily into classification and we understand the expedience of that but we understand the the problems there and the restrictions uh listeners in general aren't doing that much anymore especially listeners who grew up on the internet And so artists who grew up on the internet or who at least were aware of it as it was growing are doing the same thing, are not feeling that confinement. So all the artists I just mentioned this later surge really, to me, qualify as that. And I would include even in some of the previous surge like Kendrick Lamar, of course, Esperanza Spalling, and yes, Frank Ocean, like just just so many of those people. And that to me is why in some ways, as much as I still prefer that late 90s, early O's feel 
because it was new to me then. And it was, it was somehow, even though you knew what it was pulling from, it still felt super fresh and certainly a welcome change from the stuff that came before. I think objectively speaking, more great Neo, 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 whatever soul is being made now than even was made then. And that a lot of modern pop. And if you go back to my episode on soft music, a lot of that soft pop, whoever it's come from, even if it's not strictly soul or neo soul, you can hear that influence hugely. I mean, listen to some of what Harry Styles does, some of what, you know, Mitski does and people like that. Uh, Japanese breakfast, just all these, you can hear elements of it that I don't think they wouldn't have been there had Neo Soul not paved the way, which of course means had soul and hip hop not paved the way for that. But, you know, that's where everything is connected. You know, music is not a genre. There's almost no contemporary R&B, soul, funk, or popped tinged with all of those that doesn't owe a debt to Neo Soul. And I'm glad to see again some artists like John Legend and to a certain degree Maxwell and others continuing on. Jill Scott did not, I wouldn't say she didn't burn out. She moved into acting. She moved into all these other things. And I, you know, remember seeing her on one of the, I don't know, I think it was a uh, uh, Black Lightning uh, had a, you know, she was playing a villain there and it was great to see her. Again, wish all these people were still making music on a, in a consistent way. And uh, yeah, I don't get to see a lot of live music. So I'm sure if I did, uh, you guys, you know, out there who see them might be saying, well, they are, they're out there. They're just not putting out uh, records, put a record out, you know, this way it reaches more people and it connects more people, which brings me of course to, you know, the spotlight song for this episode. And that is a song that was originally on uh Rex album, sync P for the weird, uh, you give me a second if I don't knock something down or hit this microphone, I will pull it out. Here's the weird objective, and I'm also going to pull this one out. It's good to have this uh, this uh, wall in the back, the wall of love. There it is. That's the weird objective. So Syncope for the Weird, which was the fourth album in that series from 2020, is a song called Make Me Break Like Every Day. And it was also featured on the recent album, uh, recently released, uh, Rec Collection, The Best of Rec 2007 to 2020. Uh, I put the link in. Please listen to it. You'll also hear it at the end of this episode, as always. And the reason I chose this is I've had, again, you know, elements of soul and funk and jazz and all of the things that influenced Neo Soul in my music from the very beginning have not leaned heavily into it all that much. But Syncope for the Weird does. There's another song called Love in Stockholm that kind of leans in that in that kind of experimental soul funk direction. But Make Me Break Like Every Day has almost all of the elements of, of Neo Soul. It is it's yes, it's more electronic, but it has a warmness to it. The harmonies have a warmth to them. And the the vocals lean more towards the down, you know, lower register direction. Uh, There's not a tremendous amount of wailing or anything like that. The production itself is very warm. So there's just a huge influence of those low end harmonic clusters, like I said. And I do those in such large part because of D'Angelo. 
And at the, at the same time, there is, yeah, the the content of Make Me Break Like Every Day in general is just sexual, frankly, and relationship-based. But there's also an element of existentialism, an element of, um, you know, kind of consciousness and depth in there. When I talk about the deeper we go, the higher we fly. Yes, that is a quote from a Beatles song called Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except Me and My Monkey but done in a very different way. And it was deliberately done uh, as a quote and deliberately done differently to illustrate a certain uh, different quality to the meaning of those lyrics and how they intertwine with the rest of the song. And you can hear experimental elements throughout, especially, and they, they pop out quite a bit in the end. If you take a listen to it, I always, almost always do a track on many of the things I do that is just uh, experimental. A lot of it gets trashed, but there are certain little pieces of it that end up in there, you know, it's all that, because they work, they add a certain quality. Uh, and yeah, like I said, I'm from Philly, so it's kind of hard for me not to have some element of this in my music so please in the next 30 seconds or so stick around listen to that song go find it on anywhere you stream click the link to the Bandcamp page add it to your playlist i you know anything you can do to help support rec uh were you a neo soul fan when all of this came out if so who were some of your favorite artists were there artists i missed that you're like how could you not mention this artist or you know artists you didn't like or artists i mentioned you say yes of course uh, Erica Badu or whoever, do you think it burned out because it got too purist or the, or the people listening to it and marketing it got too purist about it? Or is it that the world had moved on or is it some combination of all those things? Or do you think it didn't burn out at all, that some of the artists might have burned out, but the genre itself continued on and morphed into the next wave? People that I mentioned, I want to hear all of your opinions and, and thoughts on all of this, because as always, my objectives here are music conversation and connection thank you for listening and watching and i'll talk to you next week Oh
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.